Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We've got a lot to go through here. All right, so again, we're, we're going fast here. I apologize, but we're trying to get the, hit the big points of Christ's life. Um, next thing we have here is his first journey to Nazareth. We find this in Luke 4, 14 through 30. Um, after Christ's temptation and early Galilean ministry, he goes back to his hometown so evidently, Christ had grown up here in Nazareth, all right? And um, and it says here, and he uh, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, sat down. And he said to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's he do? Well, he goes into the synagogue, and in those days, it's sort of like what happens in these days. If you have a traveling prophet or preacher coming into town at the synagogue, and there's only one synagogue in Nazareth, it was for the Jews met out of deference or out of respect, you would have that prophet read the scripture. And when they read it, they, they stood up when they read the scripture. Everybody stood up to read the scripture. And then he sat down to teach, which is a little bit different than what we do today. Usually we're sitting down when the teaching and, you know, the congregation with the pastor's up preaching. But in those days, you sat down. The reason you sat down is because the idea was to elevate the scripture then you lowered yourself to sit down to teach um, the Word of God. And what does Christ do? He, he quotes out of Isaiah here. Now, this is an interesting passage that he quotes, all right, because he's reading Isaiah 42 here. So if you go back to Isaiah... Actually, that's the wrong passage there. It's Isaiah 62, not 42. All right, 61. Yeah. Got to fix that there, 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty of to the captives, the opening of the prison of those that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to condemn and comfort all who mourn, to grant to those that mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And he goes on in Isaiah. So the question then, of course, is what's Christ doing here? What's he doing? What does he do that catches him off guard when he reads this passage? Yeah, but what, what did he do before that that sort of surprised them? Mm 
One of the things, remember we talked about Jesus Christ, talked about the background in the New Testament. What is the one thing I said that you will not comprehend the New Testament if you do not understand what? What were the Jews expecting? The conquering hero. Messianic expectation. And what is Christ doing here? By the way, is Isaiah 61 about the Messiah? Sure it is. Sure it is. Yeah, it's about the Messiah. But what is Christ doing here? He, he is resetting what? Well, he was basically saying your expectations are wrong. You got it. He's resetting the expectation. He's resetting their expectation. Because he said today, and this is interesting, he stops reading halfway through verse 2. He stops the reading. He doesn't complete the entire passage. He doesn't complete the entire prophecy. Now why is that? Well, I understand that to be because this is, although the prophecy is true, there are two pieces of it. There's a first piece and a second piece. Is the Messiah ultimately going to do everything in Isaiah 61? Sure. But what did they expect? They expected it all at one shot, didn't they? They expected it all at one time. And what is Christ starting to understand at this point? Not more they still don't get it, but what are they what 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 is mounting? What is starting to mount more and more? Opposition. They don't want him for who he is. And how did he know that? Because he knew it was in their hearts. They want the king, they want the Messiah, they want the kingdom. They don't want repentance, they don't want meekness, they don't want humility. They want what they want on their terms. And Christ sat down and said, well, today the scripture fulfilled in his years. And then he really rose into him. Look, look at how he, how he hits them. He's saying, uh, and all who spoke well of him... And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they were marveling at Christ for the gracious word. What kind was he speaking? Eloquent. Eloquent, graciously. And, they, and what was their response? Is this not what? Wait a minute. I went to school with this guy. What, what, where did he get this? Where did this come from? I remember my sister and my brother telling me about this guy. What's going on here? What's the deal? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. We have heard you do at, what you did at Capernaum. Do now in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. This is interesting. What is Christ getting right to the heart of right here? What were the Nazarite people expecting him to do? And he was doing miracles in Capernaum. What did they want him to do in Nazareth? And why did they think that he was going to do that? Because he was one of them. He's one of them. It's his hometown. Make us proud. Yeah. Make us proud. And Christ said, I'm not going to operate at that level. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. He said, do you realize a prophet is without honor in his own country? Why is that? Well, everybody thinks he's the guy I grew up with. What makes him so special? And then he, he, this is what he really gets him riled up. He says, you know, there was a lot of widows in the day of Elijah. And which one did he go help? Outside his country. Outside his country. That's interesting. Because what did the Israelites expect Elijah would have done? Help one of their own. He went outside the country. And he said, you know, there's a lot of guys that had leprosy in the day of Nahum, or Naaman. But who got healed? 
a foreigner, an outcast, Naaman. Not only that, but he was the head of the enemy's army. What's Christ telling these people? He said, he's looking them in the eye and he says, I'm not your lackey. Your what? Lackey. I'm not here to make you happy. I'm not here to make this town great because I happen to have grown up here. I'm not here to fulfill your agenda. Lackey. You know what a lackey is, right? No. Never heard that. Never heard that term. A lackey is someone who does what you want him to do. Okay. He's my lackey. He's going to do... L-A-C-K-Y? L-A-C-K-E-Y. A lackey is someone who caters to everyone, all my whims. He does what my whims are. Christ is saying, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm not here to, to make miracles, to do fancy things, to make you proud. He says, you know what? There's a lot of women in Elijah's day, a lot of widows. And who did Christ, who did God send him to but a foreigner? There's a lot of lepers, but who got healed? A foreigner. I don't do things the way you want me to do them. I'm not going to be your homeboy. Because that's what, and why did he say that? Because what were they expecting him to do? Be their champion. I mean, yeah. Look, look at, yeah, look at, uh, I remember when I went to Austria, Linz, L-I-N-Z, was the city, that was where Hitler was born, and you know, they were going to beautify that city as a great monument to their home, home boy that, that lived there. Draw attention to themselves. And Christ is saying, I don't operate like that. And he says, I don't want you. He says, in fact, he said, what you're doing, you're banking on the fact that I grew up here, that you know me, that you're familiar with me, to just further your own selfish ends. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to operate at that level. And he, he, he laid the cards out right on the table. And what was their response? Boy, they got mad. How mad did they get? Mad enough to kill him. You know, it's interesting. I say interesting, but intriguing. Because the Bible says, you know, don't quench the spirit. And here we see with Christ... In a sense, by their rejection, you know, he didn't do a lot of great miracles, partly because he wouldn't and partly because of their unbelief. So, you know, there's a there's a factor in our faith that can hinder, I hate to say the word hinder God, but it, it can hinder what God would be willing to do if we would totally surrender. Right. And I don't know how that all sorted, sorts out, but it, but it's evident here said he could do no great miracle there because they're unbelief. What is unbelief? Doubt? No, it's worse than doubt. Why is it worse? Because you just you don't believe. Doubt means you're not sure. Because you go down, if after this after this little incident, you go down to the Nazareth bar and grill and have an ale with the boys down there. They'd be talking about what Jesus did at the synagogue. And they'd be sitting around saying, I don't get it. I grew up with him. He's nothing special. He's the carpenter's kid. He's not brilliant. He did, he, he's not a nobleman. He's certainly not wealthy. <clears throat> Who does he think he is coming in here? And insulting us. And insulting us. Yeah, not us. What is this? But my thing is, now you knew about him. I mean, like, we can see something in a kid. You know what I'm saying? If, I, if you see a kid in the neighborhood growing up, you can see something in the kid. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people tell me all the time, but, my son, but they what, saw something mm -hmm. in him. So you mean to tell me that 
they didn't see, they had to see something in Jesus growing up. They did, but here's the thing. They, want, did, they wanted him on their terms. And when he didn't deliver what they wanted him to deliver the way they, want, they wanted him to deliver it, all of the stuff that they thought of him, they just erased because all they could key in on you're not doing what I want. Is, hey, this is the normal kid down the street. Which tells you what? He wasn't doing miracles in Nazareth growing up. He wasn't doing that. Yeah, but he wasn't doing... No. He wasn't doing bad things either. No, he wasn't. He was just a good kid in the neighborhood. But he was more than a good kid. He didn't see it. Right. But they, they didn't see it. you got to understand, they're blinded. And that's what unbelief does. Unbelief, here's the problem with the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees is, it's not that they didn't have the information. They had all the information in front of them. But they had a worldview that said the Messiah is going to do A, B, and C. In that order, Jesus came along and he did X, Y, and Z. Can't be the Messiah. But wait a minute, he's doing miracles. Doesn't matter. He's raising the dead. Irrelevant. He's healing people. By Beelzebub. They would not see it. They refused to see it. Look at, look at the whole creation evolution stuff today. You've got evolution to say, we believe the earth evolved, it's four billion years old, and we evolved over time. Well, this doesn't fit that. Irrelevant. Well, how do you explain irrelevant? Well, how, how, do, how do you explain, we're here, aren't we? Irrelevant. They, they don't even look at the data. They won't even consciously examine it because their mind is made up. Right. And because Jesus did not fulfill the wishes of the Jewish people in regards to the Messiah, they didn't want him. And it didn't matter what miracles he did. But the Nazareth, Nazareth people were worse because they wanted a Jesus that did it the way they wanted it done. They wanted the conquering king. They wanted the Messiah. They wanted him to be their homeboy. They wanted to, to ride his shirt tails to fame and popularity. They were the city where the Messiah grew up. And Jesus says, you know, I'm not here on your terms. There's a lot of widows and the one that got taken care of was a foreigner. There was a lot of people with leprosy, but Naaman's the one that got the cure. I'm not going to do it your way. And they were incensed. And they went to throw him off the cliff. Why? Because he was familiar. They were familiar with Jesus. They were familiar with him. Um... The next thing we have is the calling of the disciples. Um, we, and the thing to understand is there's really like three callings here. All right, you have the first calling of Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, possibly John, and John 1, 35 through 49. And what was this? Well, who were they following before they followed Christ? John the Baptist. So Christ said, instead of following John the Baptist, come follow me. So they did. Yeah, this is the first calling. Okay. Second calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, they were mending the nets, and Christ came along and said what? Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So they were following his ministry. Now they left their nets to follow him. All right, And there was a lot of people following Christ at that time. But then you have a third calling. And what was that? That was the call to drop everything, abandon your nets, abandon everything, come follow me full time, leave your past behind. And it says they left their fishing boats and followed Christ full time. And then we have the call of Levi. That was a separate one. What was Levi? He was a tax collector. It was called a little mocus. 
not locust, mochas. And um, you basically had two kinds of people in those days. You had people who owned the tax franchise, then sometimes they hired people to actually do the collecting of the taxes, sort of keep themselves a little distant from that. Matthew wasn't one of those. Not only did he own the tax franchise, but he was the one that levied the taxes. No middleman. And because of that, he was despised, beyond doubt. Um, law knows they said a tax collector could not um, testify in court. Could not testify in court. He was not allowed into the synagogue. He was an outcast by every stretch. And he was the one actually doing, again, the collecting of the taxes. And when Christ came along and said, come follow me, and he got up from that table... What was he giving up? Everything. Because what would the Romans do the next day? Give it to somebody else. This was a career. This is like Christ walking into the president of IBM and saying, Come follow me, and the guy resigning right then and walking out of the building. And he would never be able to go back. Now, compare that to Christ asking us to do something. Makes you ashamed, isn't it? He left it all. And then we have the final selection of the twelve. This is in Mark 3. Um, what do we find in Mark 3, Luke 6, and, and actually, I think it's Matthew 10. Um, Christ goes up on the mountain. He prays all night. He comes down, and what does he do? He selects twelve. Now, you have, to ask, you have to ask yourself the question, wait a minute now. If Christ prayed all night, was there some static on the line about Judas? No. What did Christ know that Judas would do? He knew he would have to betray him. So why did Christ choose him? It's part of the plan. Now, now, now again, did Christ make Judas betray him? No. No, that was part of Judas's personal bent. That was what he was going to do. And Jesus Christ did not interfere in the natural course of where Judas was headed. God didn't interfere. God allowed Judas to do what Judas was going to do all along. Nobody made Judas be the betrayer. Nobody forced him to do that. Judas volunteered that in and of his own. And in John 17, Christ said, I know one's going to betray me. I know that. Why? It's part of the plan of God. It's part of God's eternal decree. And God didn't make Judas do it, but Judas did it anyways. And then when you look at the, the, um, the identity of the twelve, Disciples that Christ chose to follow him. Listen, Christ made a personal choice of them. Now, how did Christ choose them? On what basis? Doesn't say, does he? Now, now let's think. Let's think a minute here. Okay. You are pretend. You're going to start a world. Religion. Can't do it yourself. You need 12 guys to do that. What, what, are, you, what are you going to be looking for? Their character. Not only their character, but what else are you going to be looking for? I'd be looking for the guys that people would follow. Like other people would follow. That would follow and what else? Faithful, true, teachable. Able to teach. You'd probably start somewhere above the people who were dirt poor or the untrusted in society. You're thinking too Christian. You're gonna you're gonna start something. You're gonna start you're gonna start a company. Who what, what kind of people are you gonna want to get? The best of the best. You're gonna want to get the best of the best. What did Christ choose? Twelve losers. Peter was a loser. John, James were losers. 
Shows a zealot. Good night, uh, an insurrectionist. Shows terrorists. Yeah. The zealous. Shows a tax collector. I mean, you're, that's talking about scraping the bottom of the barrel. You get a tax collector in that deal. Yeah. He chose losers. But why did he choose them? Because those are the names that God gave him. Those are the ones that he chose. What was Peter? Well, he's considered to be the de facto leader of the twelve. Why do you know that? Always shooting his mouth off, right? I think Chuck Swindoll said, I can just imagine Jesus walking down Palestine. Whenever he stopped abruptly, Peter smacked into the back of him. All right? Um, always asking questions. And again, it's not because he was the only one that had questions, but he's the only one brave enough to open his mouth and ask them. He's asking the questions that all the rest of them were thinking about asking, but never got around to doing. He also made the most mistakes. All right? But what... Now, now, he makes the most mistakes, but what does that tell you about him? He was doing something, right? But, but, you know, you look at the other 12 and, you know, the other 11, they're not, Peter's at least doing, okay, he's making a mistake, but he's at least moving. And people rag on him and saying, well, you know, look at him. He got out of the boat and he sunk. Well, there's 11 other guys in the boat. They never got out of it. At he least walked. he got out of the boat to walk on the water. And when he was around Jesus, he was almost invincible. When Jesus wasn't around, what happened? Weak. He's the only one you know, he made the great confession of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then a minute later, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And I was bothered me about that. You know, why would he say that so, Lord? And here's the answer. What was the disciples' expectation about Jesus? That's right. Now, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. At least they got that right. But they're looking for the conquering king. And when Jesus, when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, Yes, that's true. And they said, By the way, I'm going to die. Peter says, No, that doesn't work. You can't be the Messiah and dead. And Jesus said, No. He had to reset the expectations. But Peter, at least, he did something. And tradition says he was um, crucified upside down on the reign of Nero. It said uh, Nero crucified his wife first and then Peter. Okay? Um, and he said, I want to be crucified upside down. I don't want to be like my Lord. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And then you have Andrew, Peter's brother. Who's Andrew? Andrew was the one who told Peter about Christ. He was the uh, evangelist of the group. He was the one who's always seemed to, every time you turn around, he's bringing people to Christ. The, the fish, the boy with the fish, was brought by Andrew. Andrew was bringing people to Jesus. Um, he appears to be the most open of all the disciples. He was instrumental in even bringing Gentiles to Christ. I mean, he was the one who was always bringing somebody to Jesus. And tradition says that he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. He died as a martyr. What about James, son of Zebedee? Well, he was one of the sons of thunder. How do you get the term sons of thunder? Hot-tempered. Right? In fact, he was so zealous for the Lord, what he wanted to do? He wanted to have call down fire from heaven and destroy the town that was inhospitable. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 wait. Slow down. Sounds like some Baptist preachers I know. Slow down. Hold it. Stop. He got mom to uh, go try to talk cousin Jesus into letting him sit on the right and left hand, didn't he? That was an internal family power play. 
because Jesus, James, and John were cousins. Salome and Mary were sisters. And tells us in Acts 12, 1-4, he was the first martyr. Who's going to be the second? No. The first of the disciples to be martyred. Who's the second disciple that should have been martyred? Peter. He got let out of jail. Yeah. Um, who's the other one? Well, John, the son of Zebedee. He's James' brother. He, it, really, look at his life. It's two words, witness and love. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He talked about love. Wrote five books of the New Testament, including the Apocalypse. Was pastor of the church at Ephesus prior to his death. He was there for many years. And was the only disciple we know of that died of old age. Said he was in his 90s when he finally died. They couldn't boil him. Yeah. <laughs> Philip, he was the one that was the first one the Lord called to follow him. John 1, 43. He, he may have been the one in charge of the food detail. You know, Judas is in charge of the money. Philip is in charge of the food detail. And uh, how do you know that? Well, he was always counting the shekels, wasn't he? Very practical. Wait a minute, Lord. He said 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient. What's he doing? He's already done the math to figure out how much food they need to feed the crowd. Yeah. Now, is it okay to have that, somebody like that? Probably. Well, yeah, you need, you need to know that, but yeah. what was his problem? Yeah. He always, he always doubted. He didn't... He didn't. He was always looking at the impossible, not the possible. Wait a minute, what about God is in here? I, I, I got the Messiah here. I don't need to worry about 200 penny worth of bread. Yeah, but we just got this thing in that they, were, they wasn't looking at him as the Messiah. To, uh, they were looking at him just like the rest of them. They but they were, seeing, they were seeing Jesus doing all these miracles. <clears throat> The natural conclusion was he could take care of some dinner. Yeah, always doubted. Nathaniel, what was Nathaniel? He was also known as Bartholomew. Um, he was one of the quiet, very contemplative ones. Why? Because he was meditating under the tree, right? When Christ saw him. And he said, indeed, uh, Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So he's a very upright one. Matthew's known as Levi, tax collector. Probably, he's probably the wealthiest of all the disciples. And he wrote the book showing Christ as king of the Jews. Why would you think he was the wealthiest when he had to walk away from all of that? Well, he had collected quite a sum of money before then. Okay. So he was wealthier prior to... Possibly, yeah. Okay. You know. By the way, all of them died penniless. Yeah. Thomas, who's he? Well, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Now, you look at Thomas. And again, I don't want to psychoanalyze the guy too much. But we look at him and we rag on him for doubting. Why do you think he was doubting? He knew he was dead. How did he take the death of Christ? All of them took it pretty hard, didn't they? And when you got these, all the rest of them saying, hey, Jesus is alive. I don't know whether this is true or not, but I would almost sense or suspect that his response was not because of lack of faith is it was much I don't want to get hurt I can't believe Jesus isn't I don't want to believe that because I don't want to open myself up to being hurt again I don't want to get my hopes up only to have them dashed to the pieces mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm again I'm speculating on that I can't tell whether that is the actual case or not but there's a part of me that almost thinks that 
maybe part of it was he didn't want hurt again. And if, Even in his doubting, he becomes a great witness for the resurrection. Yeah. Because Jesus was more than just a glorified ghost. He was a corporeal being. He had solidity. He told him, come here, yeah. put your And when Jesus truly revealed himself, put it right there. <laughs> and when Jesus truly revealed himself, he said, my Lord and my God. He was not ashamed to do that. He always desired to be with Christ. He always wanted to be with him. And then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about him. Um, known as James the Less. And he may be because he was a short guy. We don't know. A remote possibility is that he was Matthew's brother. There seems to be a hint of that in Mark 2.14. We don't know for certain. And there's another remote possibility that he was Jesus' cousin since Clopas and Alphaeus are two forms of the same name. If you compare John 19.25 with Mark 15.40, in, in John 19.25, it's talking about the women at, uh, I think this is the count of the women around the um, cross. Got my multifocals on. Okay. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Clopas is also another, another one could be Alpheus. Mary, the mother, the wife of Clopas, and James, the son of Clopas. Possibly, we don't know that for sure, but there's a possibility that he was. Um, but we don't know much about him. We don't know much about Thaddeus. He's also known as Judas, not Iscariot. Sometimes he's known as Labaius. And other time he speaks are in John 14, 21 through 24. Simon the Zealot was the terrorist. He was the one that went around killing people, violently overthrow Rome. And then who's the other one? Judas Iscariot. Judas of Kiriath. Why did he want to be a disciple? In it for the money. He held the bag. He was a thief. And when it looked like things were unraveling, he wanted to get out as fast as he could. He wanted to be out of there. Well, he was already the banker for the disciples. Why did he take off with the with the their money? He needed even more. Mm -hmm. oh, they probably never had that much money. Anymore. Probably didn't have that much money to start out with, but but if he had just taken off, he would have been still associated with Christ. What did he have to do? Have to sever his relationship with Christ. What better way to do that? than to ingratiate himself with the leaders by turning Christ in. I don't know what was going through his mind. But he was never a believer. He was never one of them. He was only in it for the money. And, you know, when I look at these disciples, I think, you know, how many people today are only in it for what God gives them? They're not in it for... God himself, they're in it for what they get out of it. Sort of sad. But those are the 12 disciples. Now, as we look at the life of Christ, he did a lot of miracles. And why did he do these miracles? Why, was, why did Christ do miracles? To validate, to validate who he was. Right. If two guys come into town and they say, we have a message from God and one guy raises the dead and the other doesn't, which one are you going to listen to probably? That's a no-brainer, right? The one who does the miracle. Why? Because that validates their message. Jesus Christ did this to validate his message, but in spite of all the miracles he did, he was rejected. And why was he rejected? 
because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be something he was not. When you look at the term miracle, we, and we talk about miracle, we got to go back to what does the scripture talk, call a miracle. When we think of miracle, what do we think of? If I say define miracle for me. Ordinary. Something out of the ordinary. Something out of the ordinary. Okay? Um, and that, that comes with a whole bunch of things, right? Um, it could be, I got a parking space at the airport. That's a miracle. No. A little one. All right. You know, or I got a check in the mail. It's a miracle. So I wasn't expecting that. Or we, we use that a lot. Okay? Um, but when you look at the New Testament, when it talks about miracle, the word there is dunamis, which means power. And the question is, power over what? Well, there's two things. When we look at the English miracle, there's two words behind it. Dunamis or Simeon. Dunamis is power. Simeon is sign or wonder. Okay? So when Christ did some miracles, they were really signs. What's a sign or a wonder? Well, that's the turning of the water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000. Those were signs. Those were wonders. Um, healing was a sign as well. But what was miracle? Miracle um, was usually used in reference to Christ's power over demonic spirits. He had power over them. He was able to cast out demons. He had power over the evil spirits. And that's usually what the, con the context of the powers is. But what is the purpose of the miracles? The purpose of the miracles and signs and wonders or whatever, they were to authenticate. And this is the thing to understand. They're not normative. That's one of the problems with the charismatic crowd today. They want to say doing miracles should be a normal part of the Christian life. You should have miracles happen to you all of the time. But when you look at biblical history, did miracles happen all the way throughout the Bible? They were not an everyday occurrence. You gotta understand how how much time the how much history does the Bible cover? Four thousand years. And when you look at all those four, if you got you, all you need to do, and you can do this if you want, go home and get them, get a big chart out, and chart the miracles. Just put a little dot, history wise, when the miracles happen, and you know what you're gonna find. Miracles clump. Miracles clump. And they clump around three of basic events. They clump around Moses, right? The Exodus, you know, the burning bush, the, the, the ten plagues, the, the, the stuff in the wilderness. And then when's the second clump in history? That was that was a single that was a single miracle. I'm talking about clumps. That was one of them, but there's one before that. Elijah. Yeah, Elijah and Elisha. Right? What was happening then? Oh, they had miracles all over the place. And and, and the point is, what you do is, is you look at time. Here, all right. You see, here, here's the time of Moses. Okay, you see all a whole bunch of miracles, all over the place. Then you got a miracle here and a miracle here, and all of a sudden, all kinds of miracles. This is Elijah and Elijah. All right. Then you have a miracle. You know, sundial goes back. You know, a couple things here. And then what do you have? They have the time of Christ. What do you have? I mean, just miracles all over the place. All right. And then you have no validatable miracles since then. What well, are you going to have at the end of the time? Pentecost, wasn't there some miracles there, wasn't well, there? Well, yeah, that's around the time of Christ. Christ. Okay, you're clumping that in with Yeah, that's, that's around that time. But then what happens? No miracles until when? Yeah, until, until the rapture and tribulation and all that. Then you have miraculous things going on. 
What's, what's, what's common about all those time frames? What's common about those periods? What's the common theme, underlying theme, that's happening in each of these four clumps? What are you authenticating? God's time frame. Not that, but what? What was delivered here? A law. Which was what? The Ten Commandments. In our People. Bible, it's what? The Old Testament. First five books, Pentateuch. What's being revealed here? What are Elijah and Elisha validating? The prophets. The prophets. What's Jesus Christ validating? The kingdom. The new covenant. covenant. What's being validated here? Not necessarily new revelation, but what's being validated? The truthfulness of what? God's word. God's word. Here's the thing, and you can you go home and do this. You can you can do this on your own and and see that that the times of miracles clump. You don't have you don't have continuous miracles throughout human history, where you have miracle 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 every day. You have clumps of times where there's where miracles were very common and vast stretches of time when really not much is going on. I mean, you look in the intertestamental period between Malachi and John. Were there any miracles then? No, the first miracle that showed up was what? John the Baptist. The, 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 you know, when, when the angel appeared to his father, Zacharias, and told him he was going to have a son. The point is, miracles are there to validate truth. How do you know that? Well, look at the evidence. Now, does that mean God can't do a miracle whenever he wants to? Well, of course not. But when you have people today that tell you that as a Christian, you should have normative miracles, you should be healing people, raising the dead, having miraculous gifts of money, all this kind of stuff, there's no evidence to back that up. Because what God did when he did miraculous signs and wonders what was he doing? He was validating his truth. So the question you'd have to ask these miracle workers is, what truth are you validating? And when you look at the kind of truth they're validating, what does it contradict? What's Benny Hinn contradicting? When he says there's nine members of the Trinity and he slays somebody in the Spirit, what is he contradicting? He's not a God. He's not a prophet from God. God would not validate his truth using false prophets, would he? Well, he has a pretty powerful ally. Look at look at the, the false prophet. What's the false prophet able to do? He's able to call down fire from heaven. Now that's pretty freaking wonder. You know, that's quite a, quite a sign. But who's empowering the false prophet? Satan. Satan. Well, absolutely, Satan would do that. He loves it when you're doing miracles because as long as you don't tell him about Jesus, he doesn't care what you say. He really doesn't. He's very open-minded. But what you see is, in all these periods of time, God is using miracles to validate his message. What was Elijah and Elijah preaching? They were preaching during the prophetic, really inauguration of the prophetic office, where you have the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them. And what were they validating? When they did a miracle, what was it to validate? The message. We talked about one last, night, last week, remember? Where you have uh, um, Isaiah going up to, what is it, Ahaziah? Ahaz, and telling about the woman who's going to, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And how do I know that? Well, I'm going to give you a sign. What's God doing? Why did God give him the sign? To validate what? The message. The message. It's always to validate the message. It's never to do a sign for the sake of doing a sign. And even Jesus said that. He said, if you don't believe me for my words, at least believe me for what? 
the miracles I'm doing. What that should tell you. Now Nicodemus caught on to that. But the rest of them didn't. And what do these miracles show? They show his power. They, they validate his ministry. They validate his message. When he says, I come from God, and he proves it by raising somebody from the dead, that should tell you something. And when he casts out the demons, that should tell you that he's stronger than the demons. But they didn't get it. When you look at his power, there's several powers he has. You have power over nature. How is that displayed? Well, he could turn the water into wine. The miraculous catch of fish. Throw your nets on the other side. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. Throw it on the other side. And Peter, now, Peter, what do you know about Peter, James, and John? What were they experts at? Fishing. And the thing that will frost the fisherman more than anything is when you beat him at his own game. The stilling of the storm. What did Christ say? Peace be still and immediately. Storm is still. The feeding of the 5,000. What did he do? He made food out of nothing. So this is the clump of miracles during this time. Yes. Christ, he walked on water. He fed 4,000 people at a time. Um, Peter said, hey, we need to pay the temple tax. And Jesus said, well, go down and catch a fish and open his mouth and pull out a coin. We'll do that. The cursing of the fig tree. Remember when he cursed the fig tree and it withered and died? What is Christ showing his power over? Nature. His power over the weather, the power over food, his power over the growth of living things. He, he had absolute power over God's created order. And then he had power over disease. What is that? Well, look, look at look at the and and by the way, just in case you, you're all still confused about healing, let's look at this comparison. All right? How did Christ and the apostles heal? Well, with a word or a touch. What do you have now? A theatrical production. And the more theatrical it is, the more money you can raise. Or, then, Jesus only spoke the word. Yep. Or the disciples, you never heard them. I, I don't know. You never heard them saying they had to touch you all over this. No. Nope. Or knock you down. And, nope. And you fall out once they heal you and all that kind nope. of stuff. No theatricals. They just said the word and they was healed and they went on about the Yeah. Now you got to be able to show. Work. Now, when you look at the healings in the New Testament, they were instantaneous and complete. No one said, Jesus healed me. And I'm getting better. The only time you had an incomplete kind of healing was what? Which what was the only incomplete? Blind man spit right. in the mud. And there was Christ was at, his trees. Yeah, and he was Christ was doing an object lesson there, showing how the blindness of men were how to overcome blindness. But he would just heal instantaneously. What do you have now? It's partial and progressive. I remember talking to so many people that said, well, you went and got healed by Ernest Angel. I said, well, you're still sick. I know, but I'm getting better. Well, then you weren't healed. Healing was for organic diseases. What does that mean? You're missing an eye. You're missing a hand. You're missing a foot. You've got to have your ear put back on. You don't see that. Anybody, you see, see Benny Hinn touching somebody and have him grow a new leg? Or a new arm? No, you don't see that. Yeah. Maybe you can put that back together. Um, in Christ, healing was for everyone. He healed everybody, right? And he healed them all. Now, what do the modern faith healers say? Well, you can be healed if you have enough faith and your offering is big enough. Where's that come from? Yeah. Uh, Christ the Apostle, the healing was not dependent on the faith of the one being healed. The guy that was sitting there when Peter and John showed up and healed him, was he expecting to be healed? No. Do you have any faith in being healed? No. What was he looking for? Some coins. Some coins. And today what are you told? You have to pay 
Well, if the healer heals you, but you're not healed, whose fault is it? You don't have enough faith. It's not in the Bible. So actually, in reality, you don't need to go to Ernest Amos. If you have the faith, you can do your own healing. Right. That's right. Really. Christ is at the right hand of the Father making right. intercession. Right. Ernie, it's not going to help you. You don't need Ernest, it's not going to help you. Healing was done for unbelievers. Who did Christ heal? Believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers, for the most part. Well, some, most of them in the beginning were Jewish people. Yeah, they were Jewish, but they were unbelievers. They were not. They did not believe in him. They were not Christians. What about modern faith healers? Who, who gets healed? Only believers. Where does it show that? That's different. Here it is. Raising the dead was part of the gift of healing. See anybody, see Angelie or no. Benny raise anybody from the dead lately? Here's the point. You don't need to be a rocket science or a theologian or understand Greek and Hebrew to look at this and say, you know, what I see as healing today is not biblical healing. That's right. It's something totally different. I don't even, you don't even need to think long and hard. You don't need to get a headache on it. It's easy to see that there's a vast difference. Christ healed everyone. And when you look at the healing of ministry of Christ, I just got some of them. You know, Louis got the healing of the nobleman's son, Peter's mother-in-law, all of the sick in Capernaum. He healed lepers. The healing of the man with palsy, the man at the pool of Bethesda, the man with the withered hands, the healing of the multitudes, the centurion servant, the woman with the issue of blood, two blind men, the multitudes at Gennesaret, Syrophoenician's daughter, the healing of the deaf, dumb man in Decapolis, the blind man of um, Bethsaida, healing of the man born blind, woman bound by Satan, ten lepers, the blind man at Jericho, the healing of Malchusir, the man with dropsy on the south. He healed everybody. Someone has said that Christ essentially banished disease from Palestine. He literally banished it from Palestine. Anybody here, you want to have, I'm going to ask a question. Does anybody here know the first known medical cure of a disease when that happened? Um, nope. Berry, berry? When? Time period. The berry, berry? A known disease was healed. Not, not prevented, but healed. A known disease? Yeah. By medicine or what? By medicine. I would say the 1800s. Yeah, Chinese what, what is and... No. 1920s. Yes. And I'm, I'm, you know what I'm going to say to you? It wasn't until the 1920s Philistine. that there was an understanding of the pathology of disease, the transmission of disease, in, in, the, in the flu epidemic of 1918. I mean, our entire... It's interesting, you've got to read a book on that. There's a book out talking about that, but our entire medical system, you look at the, the medical system we have today, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, all of those, they trace the, moder the modern medicine movement and the modern understanding of medicine started in the 1920s. Until then, there was no known cure for any disease. You could alleviate symptoms and stuff like that, but to cure a disease, they didn't have it. It's hard to believe because there's, like, that was just, like, Generation or two. A generation two ago. Yeah. 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 But that's interesting. It, it's interesting to see that. Well, that. well, when I hear my mom was born in the nineteen twenties, but when I when I heard them talk of uh, diseases and stuff back in the day, uh, I, I guess you always die. Yeah. There was no. There was nothing when, that, that my mom always said, or they had a, a different name for it, just like they had uh, heart disease and, and, and where we grew up at. They call it um, St. Saint, Saint Vitamin Dance. Mm -hmm. What that means? St. Vitus. St. Saint Saint Vitamin Dance. dance. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that means, but it meant that heart disease. That's Korea, too. That was heart disease, too. So mm -hmm. whatever my mom was. But nobody lived. No. Nobody lived, whatever was wrong with them, you died. Yeah. Usually in those days when you got a fever, that was the end of the beginning. Yes. You know, nobody, you know, nobody knew. My grandmother's sister died in 1921 of diphtheria. Yes. 
So they didn't have antibiotics. They right. didn't understand how the disease was transmitted. In 1918, they didn't know how the disease was transmitted. They couldn't figure out why people were dying. They didn't understand how disease passed from one person to another. They didn't understand any of that. Even like last week, if I, if I was born back then, I'd have probably been dead oh, last week. Yeah. I, I had to take some serious antibiotics, but it was just fine. It was just like seven little pills and yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Like not even 100 years ago. Yeah. You'd have been in, you'd have been in in bed and you possibly would have died. I'd have died multiple times because I broke my nose. I've had needles a bunch of times. So I'd be dead yeah. multiple times by now. And when I grew up in elementary, I mean, the big talk was always tuberculosis, polio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So were still Measles. Yeah. Yeah. There used to be a clinic right out there off of uh, uh, 58 and uh, Cleveland Street there in Amherst. Mm-hmm. Tuberculosis. Yeah. Yeah. Sanitarium. Sanitarium. Yeah. But um, so Christ power of disease. And look, folks, when you look at what the jokers are doing on TV and what Christ did, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. You don't need to look long and hard to understand that what passes off as healing today is not the biblical gift of healing. And then Christ shows his power over Satan. In what way? Well, the demoniac at Capernaum, the gathering demoniacs, the demon-possessed man, the healing of the demoniac after the transfiguration. Christ had total power over the demons. They ran shrieking from his presence. And it wasn't because he was the lord of the demons. What was he? He was their enemy. He was the strong man that could bind them. And they begged him not to send them to the Abusas, the pit. And by the way, Christ had absolute, total, complete sovereignty over who else? Satan. And this concept that Satan and God are sort of equals but going at it is ridiculous. Yeah. Christ Christ is not God does not shake in the boots when Satan comes in. And that's the error of the modern word faith movement where they make God, Jesus, you know, he's impotent to, to act in this world because it belongs to Satan. He's legally not allowed to do. That's ridiculous. That is absolute asininity. Do you want to live under the sovereignty of Satan? MacArthur had somebody show up at his church. Um, he, was, he was talking about this. We'll go a couple minutes over. I don't mind. Almost done. But he had somebody, family show up at his church, and they started coming to his church. And he, you know, he asked them, so why do you come to church? Well, we went down to this so-and-so church down the street. And he said, we constantly lived under the fear of the sovereignty of Satan. And the first Sunday we came to your church, you preached on the sovereignty of God, and we've never left because we understand that God is in charge, not the devil. Right. And he was talking about a church down the street where some prophet came in and um, said of the pastor that, you know, this is a, highly, this is a man of God. This, he's going to be doing great, wonderful things. He's going to um, um, really transform the, the Christianity, something along those lines. And while I speak, and the guy he's prophesying to fell over dead of a heart attack. And someone asked him, he said, well, what, what's the deal with that? Well, Satan knew that was true, so Satan killed him. Oh, Satan killed him because he was going to be... Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. This is the stuff that... Pat Look, so I'm, I don't know about you. I'm taking great comfort in the fact that Satan is not sovereign. He is on a long leash. God's got his on a chain. And Satan can do squat unless God allows him. That's right. And I don't need to live under the fear that some demon is going to jump out under a, from behind a bush and beat me up. God is in sovereign control of all things. You know, in the beginning, the beginning of Job was my first reaction. I was blown away. Satan, God's God. He's in charge. God is in charge. And then what do you see? You see Christ's power over death. Um, he healed the widow's son of Nain. Stop the burial. Guy got up off the bier and walked away. The raising of Jairus' daughter. Raising of Lazarus. And what else to who else did he raise? Himself. Himself. Not to mention some of the saints that was in the grave with him. Jesus had he came out there. Came in, And it's interesting, someone said had Christ not qualified Lazarus come forth, all the dead would have rose again. That's right. Jesus has power over death. What does this tell you about Jesus? Jesus has absolute total power over all things because he is God. He is sovereign. 
And what's he doing? He is validating to everybody who will open their eyes and look that he is the Messiah. He's validating it. You want to know if I'm the Messiah? I've raised the dead. I've healed people. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. That's what he told the disciples of John, right? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? And he said, well, what do you see? You see the dead being raised again. You see the lame walking. The... Go back and tell John everything's, everything's on schedule. We're okay. Jesus has absolute total power. And his miracles validated his mission and his message. All right, we'll stop there and pick up next week. Father, thank you for this time we've had to ponder your word, to study it. Thank you so much for teaching us. And help us to grasp maybe to a little bit the wonderful Savior that we follow, the great God that we serve. And we thank you for loving us and dying for us and giving us understanding. We thank you, Father, that you're in charge. We don't have to worry about Satan winning because he's a defeated foe. It's just the game isn't over yet. We thank you for this night again. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.